Now take your copy of God's Word with me and turn to the Old Testament prophet of Malachi. Malachi today, chapter 1, picking up in verse 6. For those of you who are visiting with us today, you are joining us near the beginning of a study through this Old Testament minor prophet. Uh, And Malachi is arranged according to several disputations, six disagreements between the Lord and his people. And in each of these six major sections in the book, the Lord makes a claim or a charge and his people disagree. Uh, And then the Lord sets the record straight. Today we will see only the first half of the second disputation, uh, which has to do with the priests who are leading the people. Lord willing, we will come back next week and pick up in chapter 2 to see the second half of this major section of the book. But today in Malachi chapter 1, we're beginning to read in verse 6, reading to the end of verse 14 at the end of the first chapter. Before we read this word together, please join me as we seek God's blessing on our study together. Let's pray. O Lord, we confess that unless you move by your Spirit, what we said of us that... uh, just as it was said of old, that seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear. Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes and our ears and our hearts that we may not only see and hear, but also turn and believe and that we would be healed by you. Lord, give us a vision of Christ, our great high priest, and the perfect sacrifice he offers on our behalf, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now God's word as we find it in the book of Malachi, chapter 1, beginning to read in verse 6. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts, to you, O priests, who despise my name? But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. Such a gift from your hand will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering, for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what's been taken by violence or is lame, or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. 
thus far the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing as we study it together today. I wonder, uh, what is the worst gift that you almost got for someone? I don't mean a gift so bad that you regret getting it. I mean a gift so terribly horrible that you are glad that you didn't actually follow through with the first idea you had. I remember one Christmas that my mother rescued me from my own poor gift giving. I couldn't have been more than eight years old. And at that stage, parents take their children to department stores to pick out gifts for the other spouse. And that's what my mother did with my brother and with me. She took us to Ames, the local department store, uh, to pick something out for my father. Of course, there was no internet at the time. There was no Amazon.com. And I knew that in going to pick out a gift for my father, that I would probably also get to spy out a few aisles of toys. And I knew that I might even be able to drop a helpful hint or two if my parents had not finished their shopping for me yet. And so as we entered the store, we entered pulling in two opposite directions. My mother was trying to guide me towards something for my father, but I wanted to look at things for myself. And when finally pressed for a decision, what will you pick out? There was a bin of stocking stuffers nearby, and so I reached out and reached in and, and pulled out a digital tire pressure gauge. Truth be told, my father would have been perfectly pleased with a digital tire pressure gauge. He would have made a point of using it just to make me feel good, but my mother knew better. My mother knew that, that I didn't choose that gift for him, but rather for myself. She saw that I chose what was close and quick and easy rather than what was thoughtful. She saw that I chose a gift that didn't really reflect how much I loved my father. Now, from the other side of the parenting equation, I've learned that experiences like this are part of the value-added benefit of having children. Uh, it is in our kids that we often see the unfiltered selfishness that most adults by now have learned to hide underneath some other show. And it's in our children that we often recognize sins that we try to ignore in ourselves. So it is in this passage today. That in this passage, we're going to see a sin that might look uncomfortably familiar. Just like the priests in Malachi's day, many professing Christians are minimalists when it comes to worship of the living God. Many professing Christians come to worship God looking for what we can get rather than what we can give. And of course we know this by observation of those in other churches, but we also know it by experience of our own hearts. Praise the Lord that by his mercy, I would imagine many of you, if not most of you in this room, know what it is to come into worship and to have that sense of the overpowering awe of the God into whose presence you have been ushered. Praise the Lord that many of us know what it is to be brought nearly to tears by the joy of forgiveness, that many of us know what it is to have the world fade away as we behold the King in his glory. But then again, we also know how easy it is to sit right here and to daydream through the songs and the confessions and the sermons. 
many of us know how the weight of glory can evaporate so quickly in a single heated conversation on the way home from church. Many of us know how easy it is on Monday morning to exchange real sacrificial obedience for something that looks quite similar but isn't nearly as costly. Brothers and sisters, I'm speaking for myself as well this morning. I hope you know that. This is not a finger-wagging sermon. This is a passage that is directed to the priests in Israel, to the leaders of worship in God's house. And it can happen for the pastor just like it happens for the people. And what a sad and shameful a thing it is when all the labors that we offer to the Lord become just the next thing on our date book. They become just one more thing that we have to do, just one more box that we have to tick. With God's help today, I hope we're going to see some of the ways that our worship looks far too much like these priests, but much more than that, I hope that we'll also see the high priest who cleanses us of our sin and purifies our worship and gives us worship from the heart. Well, we begin examining this passage by seeing the sin of selfish sacrifice. That's our first point. In verses 6 through 9, the focus is on the sin of selfish sacrifice. Verse 6, a son honors his father and a servant his master. If I then am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priest, who despise my name. And with those questions, the Lord exposes the heart of all false worship in any of its various forms when it shows up. Where did those vain offerings of the people and the priests come from? Well, they didn't come from an ignorance about how to show respect where respect is due. Actually, the people knew how to show respect. They knew how to navigate those sometimes tricky authority dynamics, even in their own society. They knew how to give respect. And yet the priests are allowing the worshipers to bring second-rate sacrifices. He points out animals that are lame, animals that are blind, animals that are sick. In other words, the animals that would be culled from the herds and slaughtered anyway. It became a sort of one stone, two bird proposition. Well, you're going to get rid of that animal. Why not give it to the Lord instead and make a present of it? And the Lord challenges them to make those offerings as a gift to their governor. But of course, they know better. They know how to give gifts that show honor. They know how to give gifts that display disrespect. Netflix has, uh, has a movie uh, a recent drama called The King. And in the movie The King, Timothy Chamelet, I, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, uh, but he, he portrays King Henry V. In this movie, King Henry V is an unlikely hero who rises from a life of debauchery and drunkenness to ascend to the throne of England. On the night of his coronation, King Henry receives gifts from all of his allies, gilded gestures of, of support, and peace, and respect. Uh, but from the French, with whom the English are at war, Henry receives a different gift. He opens a decorated box to find inside simply a leather ball, a statement that King Henry V is nothing but a petulant child playing at politics. Now, every slave and child in Israel knew how to approach someone more honorable than themselves. And every Israelite under the thumb of Persia knew how to give gifts 
that would be received as an insult rather than as a genuine offering. And so if the priests have neglected the proper offerings, it's not a problem of ignorance, but a problem of disrespect. They have not merely transgressed the commandments that God has given for worship, but they have rejected God himself. That is always where false worship comes from. That's why the Lord focuses on the issue of his name in this passage. You notice how many times the Uh, the language of God's name and how it ought to be great among the nations shows up and how what they're doing is not just polluting the altar, but despising God's name. Of course, in the Bible, God's name is not just the title that we give to him. It's not just uh, the first name on his name tag. God's name is his character. It describes it. It shows us who God is and all of his almighty power and presence for his people. In the midst of Israel's sin at the base of Mount Sinai with the golden calf, you remember that the Lord comes and shows and and reassures of forgiveness by declaring his name. He declares the Lord, the Lord to Moses and reassures the people that he's willing to forgive. The Lord promised in the Old Testament and also in the New that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Because, of course, calling upon that name, we call upon God's power, we call upon his presence, we call upon all that he is and all that he will be for his people. Jesus, when he sent out the church, commanded that his people would be baptized into the triune name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and that baptism becomes a symbol of association with who God is for his people. So God's name is who he is. The Lord is exposing the heart of all false worship when he says that by denying him the honor that he's due, his priests despise his name. They are rejecting the God who has revealed himself as worthy of glory and honor and respect. The same thing happens time and time again, every time that true worship is replaced with false worship. It happened for the people in Israel of old. They rejected the God who revealed himself as the only God in heaven and earth. And in his place, they began to worship the Baals and the Ashtaroths and the Moleks of the nations around them. It happened in the first centuries of the Christian church where there was a group called the Docetists. They rejected the God who promises to to redeem both body and soul. And so, in the place of the real Jesus, they worshipped a version of Jesus who had only an illusion of humanity, no real substance. The Western church, for the last century and a half or more, has rejected the idea that there is a God who saves sinners through the sacrificial blood of atonement. And so, in his place, they have worshipped an idol of mercy without repentance and acceptance without atonement and sacrifice. This is where false worship always comes from. It comes from a willingness to reject God as he has revealed himself. And then once we've exchanged the glory of God for a lie of our own choosing, worship degenerates even further. It becomes a way of pursuing our own convenience. Rather than an opportunity to adore the God who's worthy of praise, and that's what was happening here, the priests were allowing polluted food on the altar. They were allowing blemished animals when God had called strictly for unblemished, perfect animals. Of course, if you're a farmer, if you're a 
If you're a shepherd, you know that the perfect and unblemished animals are more valuable. They become your breeding stock. They're the ones that you use to sell at the, at the market. They're the ones from which you get the best wool. Those are the ones that are more expensive. And of course, people being as we are and stingy, we don't want to give what costs us the most. We want to give what costs us the least. But the priests have figured out a way around that. By lowering God's standards just a little bit, nobody would probably ever know they could drum up some more business for the temple. And by the way, as more people came and brought more sacrifices, more priests could take more of their share from what was being offered. It was a win-win for everybody. And by the way, they could also uh, change the presentation of all these things. They could present God as a kinder, gentler, more accepting God. God doesn't demand perfection from you. God meets you where you are. He would be happy to have nothing but a digital tire pressure gauge for Christmas, wouldn't he? Doesn't matter what you give. Any old thing that you'd like to give, God would be happy with just that. And so you come to the Lord and you get to set the terms of engagement. And doesn't everybody like to set their own terms? Especially when we come into worship. Now, not to put too fine a point on it, but the priests in Malachi Day were the pioneers of what today we would probably call the seeker-sensitive church. It's the man-centered approach to worship that begins with a survey about what the people like rather than scriptures about what God has commanded. Now, before we run with that idea, let me say that Redeemer Presbyterian Church could stand to learn a lot about zeal for the loss from those churches we may look down on as seeker-sensitive. Nevertheless, you know that old saying. That what you win people with is what you win people to. And so if the church growth movement imagines that it will bring people into the doors of a church because they have a coffee bar and a volleyball league and music that makes people's toes tingle, then all sinners will realize is the value of good coffee and fun volleyball and rousing music. So it was in the day of Malachi. If the priests are only bringing the people into the temple with half-hearted worship, all they would learn is that God does not need to be taken seriously. Much more when they're dealing with the sacrifices that are supposed to show forth the realities of sin and forgiveness. Why is there to be an unblemished lamb? Because there was coming an unblemished Savior who would perfectly fulfill all of God's uh, laws for his people who would perfectly fulfill all that his people could not fulfill for themselves. It was meant to point forward, but they lowered the standards. And all the people could learn by that lowering of standards is that sin isn't that important. That forgiveness isn't that difficult. And that God can be trifled with. And that his holiness isn't so holy that it takes a perfect sacrifice to make atonement. And because it denies what God has said about himself, because it diminishes realities of sin and forgiveness twice in this passage, the Lord calls half-hearted worship evil. It's a sin. And he condemns the sin of selfish sacrifice. Now, worship like that is an insult to God, and it's also a hindrance to his plans for the nations. And so the second thing we see in this passage, after the Lord has exposed sinful 
uh, selfish sacrifice, he reminds us of God's mission of glory. This is our second point. Uh, The focus here is verses 10 to 12. It's the mission of God's glory. Take a look again at verse 10. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. I will not accept an offering from your hand. That seems to be a shocking statement, but believe it or not, the Lord has said other things very similar in other prophets. Remember the opening chapter of Isaiah, verses 12 to 14. The Lord spoke there. He said, when you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They've become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them, says the Lord to his people, gathering in his temple. No more, he says. Now, the situation was different in Isaiah's day. In Isaiah's day, uh, the sacrifices served as religious theater. There were these sins of violence and oppression circulating unabated among the people, but they would come and they would offer their sacrifices and say, we're good, we did our duty, everything's finished here. In Malachi, the situation was different. These are sacrifices that are being offered uh, thoughtlessly because it was simply easier, it was more convenient. But whether the issue is is religious theater or, or mere convenience, the verdict is the same in both prophets. God declares he actually prefers an empty sanctuary to a temple filled with empty worship. Because the way that his people were worshiping had become worse than useless. Now the reason for God's strong statement in verse 10 shows up in verse 11. Uh, Notice that little word for. Now for, uh, oftentimes in scripture, means because. It helps us to see the logic between what the Lord is teaching us. So why is it that the Lord takes no pleasure in the worship of his people? Why is it that he will not accept an offering from their hand? Verse 11, for or because. Because from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name in a pure offering. For or because, my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. In other words, God is determined. He is determined to do what he's been prophesying through all of his prophets up to this point, that he's going to take the glory that he should have been receiving in Israel and extend it among the nations. He's going to take Jacob and make him a light to the Gentiles. He's going to fulfill the promise that he gave to Abraham to bless all the families of the earth through his one family. He is going to do, as he commissioned through the church, through Jesus Christ, he is going to gather disciples from all nations. Why does the Lord not receive empty worship from his people? Because God is on a mission of glory. And he wants his name to be shown as holy among the nations. And we can forget that when we come together here. When we're gathered as God's tiny church. And this tiny people in this tiny place with our tiny prayers. We can forget what God is doing among the nations. Sometimes we pin it on the fact that we don't have a building, that we show up in a community center and we worship in relative obscurity and we leave from this place and there's no sign with our name on it outside. And we can forget that God's doing something beyond the 60 or 85 people who sit in these chairs every week. 
We can forget that God is about something that is beyond us. That he has a purpose greater than what and who we see gathered week after week in West Concord. It's easy for us to forget how our worship has something to do with God's glory among the nations. But that's the reason that God refuses vain worship. He tells him, just, just shut the doors. Because what he wants is not no offering, but true offering. He wants offering that declares to a watching world what the Lord is really like. He intends for the worship of his people to become part of the witness of his people. He wants people who don't yet know who he is to see the way his people worship and be convinced that there is someone who is worth all the fuss and seriousness and sacrifice that worship truly demands. And so let me ask you, Church of Christ, what does your worship declare to a watching world? I know that your neighbors may never come and sit here with you. It's very likely they will never sit beside you and sing songs or pray prayers, but they watch you. They watch you in the wintertime when it's miserable outside and you're all dressed up and you're getting in your car and you're leaving for a few hours on a Sunday morning where everyone else is inside and cozy and drinking coffee and there you go dragging your children to some place for a few hours and you do it every week. They see you when the sun is shining and they're all going to the beach and what are you doing? Putting on a suit and a jacket and showing up to church. And then you come home and they're watching to see if it makes a difference in Monday through Saturday. They're watching to see whether you're worshiping just to tick that box or whether your worship actually follows you home. They probably wouldn't put it this way, but they're watching to see if worship is something that means something to you. They're watching to see if it shows up in your words and your attitudes, and the way that you deal with disappointments and setbacks. That's the difference, isn't it? We don't bring flocks and herds and sheep and bulls and goats and, and physical offerings the same way that the Israelites did. We have one perfect high priest who has given himself once for all for the forgiveness of sins of his people. And we do not bring bloody sacrifices like the Israelites had to bring bloody sacrifices. And yet the New Testament still tells us to bring our offerings to the Lord. Paul tells us to submit our bodies as a living sacrifice. To live differently than the pattern of the world. To have our minds transformed and renewed. That's our sacrifice. That's our worship to the Lord. Not just on Sunday morning. The letter to the Hebrews urges us to offer up a continual sacrifice of praise. That is, the fruit of lips that confess his name. It urges us to do good and to share what we have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Peter calls us to another spiritual sacrifice, of standing in the midst of a watching world to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness. And the reason that God takes worship so seriously is that the sacrifices of his people are meant to declare his glory among the nations. The world is watching, whether you know it or not. So let me ask you again, what does your worship declare about the God you claim to believe? What do your neighbors see in the way that you worship on Sunday 
on Monday and on Thursday evening. Let me ask it a different way. Parents, what does the worship in your home declare about the God who is the Lord of your household? Are your children being raised in a home where there are priorities for worship? Or as soon as something conflicts with your schedule, either throughout the week or on Sunday morning that makes church inconvenient, does God and worship of him get pushed to the sidelines? Do you expect your children to grow up and leave your home and to make worship a priority in their lives if they haven't seen worship as a priority in your life? Your worship is meant to be a witness, and that sometimes goes even for those who are in your home. And so what does your worship declare about the God who you serve? No, the Lord's name will be great among the nations. And if he has called you as his, he's also calling you and your worship to be part of that mission of glory. Well, the chapter ends with a warning telling us that heartless worship will not be winked at by the Lord. And so the final verses, verses 13 and 14, uh, show us the curse of empty worship. The curse of empty worship. Well, there's a kind of tired routine that the priest in the temple had fallen into, isn't there? It's one of the occupational hazards of, of vocational ministry if you're your heart is not continually being guarded by the Holy Spirit and turned to the Lord uh, and stirred up uh, through prayer. If your heart is not fixed on God's goodness, you can get lazy in handling sacred things. The same happens in modern ministry. It just looks a little bit different. In, in modern ministry, getting lazy with handling sacred things means sometimes that one email just rolls into another email, that one meeting and counseling session rolls into another meeting in counseling session, that your preparation for next week's worship becomes just the same as the previous week's worship, and it all becomes monotony and drudgery. Well, in Malachi's day, in the temple, it looked more like one more family, bringing one more goat, lighting one more fire, setting out one more element, pouring out more, uh, more wine and oil on sacrificial grain. It looked like uh, one more transaction. Because the people are going to bring their sacrifice and they're going to offer it and the priests will help them and then uh, they'll do what priests always do, right? They will raise their hands in a benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord be gracious to you and lift up his countenance upon you. The Lord lift up his face upon you and give you peace, they would say. And it's just one more family and one more blessing and one more offering and one more benediction and the routine could go on and the priests had lost the wonder of standing in the place of intercession between the living God and his chosen people. They had become bored with serving the Lord. What a weariness, they'd say. They'd snort at it. You can imagine maybe a roll of the eyes as the next family comes with their offering. And it had become transactional. And, you know, maybe they could lower the standards of the transaction. So what if the animal doesn't meet the standard? So what if it isn't unblemished? So what if we see those richest among the Israelites coming with the absolute least possible sacrifice? Who cares? We can still do our part. We can raise our hands at the end of it all. And we can say, you're blessed. 
God is gracious. God accepts you. He's happy with whatever you bring. And the Lord speaks a different word, doesn't he? Cursed, he says, be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. It's almost reminiscent of Ananias and Sapphira. They didn't have to give everything, but they wanted to be seen on the outside as though they had. They wanted people to see them as pious. They wanted other people to praise them as as good believers, good Christian people who were sacrificial. So they attempted to lie to the Holy Spirit. They had no intention of serving the Lord from the heart. What Malachi is describing is an offering in King David's language that cost the offerer nothing. And the Lord declares that for those who approach the Lord through false worship, empty worship, vain worship, he will turn even what should be a blessing into a curse. It all points to the fact that in order to be accepted by the Lord, we need something more than routine and transaction. We need worship from the heart. In fact, we need more than worship from the heart because all of those of you who agreed with me at the beginning that it's all too easy to sit here and daydream through it all, you know that what we need is is worship that we can't offer. All of those of you that profess together in our confession of sin that, that praise has often been praiseless sound, that our best service are filthy rags. If you prayed that and agreed with it, you know that there's nothing you can offer. There's no sacrifice you can bring that will be enough for God's perfect standard. And it means that you need something than what you, something more than what you can give. We need a sacrifice that is better and more consistent than our best Sundays in God's house. We need a spotless lamb that's purer than any animal ever sacrificed on an altar in Jerusalem. We need a priest with perfect righteousness who's able and willing to proclaim God's blessing on people who deserve only God's cursing. This is, of course, what the Lord has provided in His Son, In the days of old, God commanded his people to come to his temple with their hands full of offerings. Grain and wine and beasts of the field. He gave them laws. He gave them restrictions that pointed beyond themselves. He gave them ordinances that required them to, to see that a mediator is needed. That without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. But in the final analysis, whether in the Old Testament or in the days of the New, when we come before the Lord, no matter how much we have to give in outward worship, we all come like Isaac, walking uphill with his father Abraham. We've got our our little bundle of sticks. Something that's just going to be burned up anyway. All we can muster, all we can stand to carry. And we come with a question, where is the sacrifice? Because I know it can't come from me. And you know the rest of that story in Genesis 22. So you know that after the Lord provides an offering, Isaac disappears from the story. He's almost unimportant at that point. There's the ram caught in the thicket and Abraham takes it and he offers it and the Lord speaks a benediction, a promise of blessing upon his covenant family. And Isaac is 
nowhere to be found, but it makes you wonder what worship felt like that first time Isaac realized there was a sacrifice that was able to take his place. Do you think he ever worshipped better than he did on that mountain? Do you think his heart was ever more full of the glory and joy of the Lord? That's where worship comes from. Not from a formula or, or, or church growth or audience engagement or, or sermons with catchy ending points. It doesn't come from our own efforts to stir up our souls with emotion and feeling or our own devotion next week to do better for our children than we did this week because they're watching, aren't there? That's not where true worship comes from. No, true worship comes from the Holy Spirit who convinces us that God has provided a sacrifice to take our place, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. True worship comes from realizing that in Him, our worst sins are really forgiven, flawlessly and perfectly. True worship comes from realizing that in Him, even our worship is cleansed from the iniquities we bring to it. True worship comes from uh, the one the Lord has given, because it's in him that God receives the glory that is due to his name. We're going to come in just a moment to a table where this sacrifice is pictured for us again. It's true worship what we do when we gather around. When we come declaring that I don't deserve to be at this table, and neither do you. But we're here by God's grace anyway, through a sacrifice who draws us near. Let's join together in prayer. Oh Lord, we pray that you would be glorified among your people as we come to your table. Show us the mercy of Christ our Savior. Draw us to him. Cause us to love you and serve you. Oh Lord, do in us that which we are unable to do for ourselves, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.